Welcome to Careers Unwrapped, where we delve into real-life career stories from successful people who've been through it all, the ups and the downs. We'll get their raw, honest, actionable advice and be the careers talk they wish they'd had when they started out. As someone who has had a varied career, from soldier to salesman, expedition leader to entrepreneur, he knows firsthand that your career doesn't always lead you where you expect it to. Here's your host, Mark Fawcett. Hello and welcome back to Careers Unwrapped. I'm your host, Mark Fawcett, and with me today is Joe Seddon. Now, Joe is an entrepreneur who set up his business, Zero Gravity, straight out of university. He's raised millions in investment to scale his business. He's been recognized in the Forbes under 30 list. He's received a social impact award from the prime minister. He's also a school governor. He is a charity trustee. He's an investor in his own right. And Joe's going to be talking candidly about how he fits all that in, but also about his career highs, his lows, what he's learned along the way, and hopefully offering advice to any budding entrepreneurs. So, Joe, welcome to the show. Great to be on, Mark. Thanks for inviting me. Joe, your titles really at the moment, or what you are at the moment, you're a chief executive and a founder, but people are always interested to know what does that mean you actually do? What's in your in-tray or your inbox for the week ahead? Running a startup is really interesting because one day can go from the very glamorous to the very unglamorous though within a couple of hours so today for instance they're recording this podcast right now we've used sort of tell the uh, zero gravity brand story to the world but before this and I had a client call a call with accountant and the R&D tax credit consultant to go through this year's R&D tax credit and then earlier this morning had the company all hands where know we spoke to our entire team about the where we are as a business, our current strategic priorities, and our KPIs. It's a very mixed and varied day, but I would say there's a really big difference between being a CEO and being a founder. And this is a, a journey I've been on over four years. So when I founded Zero Gravity, there was me in my student bedroom. I had no resources and it was a completely bootstrapped business where it felt a little bit like you know, me against the world. And in that day, I was a true unadulterated founder no, I essentially did everything I set the vision set the strategy got the brand out there you know built the product sent the emails you know did the social media accounts you do everything and that's what it means to be a be a founder like you're, you're both strategizing and executing at the same time and over the past four years as we've raised investment you know got the business working grow the team I've, I've morphed into a bit more of a chief executive role where I'd spend a lot of time, time nowadays hiring people, you know, setting the strategy, the vision, you know, coaching other people you know, within the business, and you know, try and get results through other people. And, and that was a really big learning curve for me personally because I never actually had a proper job before. Like I had no idea how to build a team, how to manage people, how to motivate them. So I had to sort of learn all of that by trial and error. And as someone who was naturally you know, an introvert, and had been used to being part of an education system, which is all focused on me, 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 and that individual performance, not about succeeding as a group. It was a really big you know, change in style I had to go through to sort of thinking, actually, how do I you know, get results through others? How do I translate my, my vision into something that other people can then go away and take and use from themselves and to create the right culture for people to thriving and i think that's a really big challenge that a lot of young founders have to go through and there is no kind of manual or book you can read to learn how to do that you just have to learn by doing i've got 
such tremendous respect for people who start their own business at the age and time that you do. I started my business in my mid to late 30s, which gave me the advantage of having been in other working environments in both leadership positions and being led by others. And so I could take a little bit of each of those and learn from it. But doing it straight out of university is, it's tough. I think to give us a bit of context, it would probably be useful to hear directly from the founder's voice what zero gravity is and what you do. Before I sort of talk about what zero gravity does, I'll sort of start with the why behind the business. Now, why found the business in the first place straight out of university? My story is I grew up in a small town in West Yorkshire called Morley, which is just outside Leeds. I was a sort of single parent. A family attended state schools and saw firsthand just how big the barriers were for young people like me to break into elite institutions. I managed to get a place at, at Oxford University, which was a completely crazy thing to happen for someone like me from the backgrounds that I was from. In the year I graduated, not a single person from my local constituency in Morley, the one place at Oxford University, which just sort of shows how sort of dramatic it was for someone in that area to go to a place like that. I sort of became very passionate about trying to find a way to level the playing field in the UK. They're trying to untether that link that everyone knows about between your background and the opportunities you're exposed to. And whilst I was at university, I saw all these incredible technology businesses you know, transform every single facet of my life, whether it was Facebook changing the way me and my friends communicated to the Uber, changing the ways you can get around big cities or Deliveroo getting sushi to your desk in 20 minutes. And I thought, if technology can solve some of those really big problems, then why can't technology be used to you know, break down those barriers that prevent you know, talented young people from their normal backgrounds they're getting into elite institutions and that is where zero gravity was born from a tech platform that identifies top talent from low opportunity backgrounds and powers them into top universities and careers so that was the kind of mission behind the business that is a genuine mission driven organization i didn't start this organization to try and make loads of money but I did want to solve a really big social problem. And I thought the best way to do that was with a tech startup approach. And they're trying to learn from some of those things which tech businesses had done, many of whom had just focused on the how do we make loads of money for shareholders. That I wanted to leverage some of those same approaches to try and solve a social problem as old as society itself. And so you didn't actually study a tech-based degree at Oxford. So you weren't a techie, a coder. Yeah, you went in to actually establish a tech-based business. In a practical sense, how did you go about doing that? I studied philosophy, politics, and economics at Oxford, which is probably more famous for creating failed politicians than it is tech startup founders. But I was a techie in the sense that when I was growing up in Morley in West Yorkshire, I was obsessed with technology. It sounds cliche, but I remember when Steve Jobs unveiled the first iPhone and watching that online, just being blown away. I sort of became obsessed with what was going on in Silicon Valley, which is quite a strange thing for someone from West Yorkshire to be obsessed with, you know, what's going on around 5,000 kilometers away on the other side of the Atlantic. I'd sort of taught myself to code at the age of 13. I was really engaged in the tech ecosystem. I had some of that understanding of this tech startup landscape there. I had some of the practical skills to be able to get my business off the ground in terms of I knew how to buy a domain name, get web hosting set up, build your first website, build a very basic application 
I was by no means an expert, but I, I was able to get off the ground. And I think for many young founders, the, the blunt truth is if you start a business bootstrapped with no resources, in the early days, you do have to learn and pick up lots of skills to be able to get your business running. Now, when you are a free founder, you have to execute across all sorts of different things and almost be the kind of consumer generalist. And suddenly when your business gets bigger, that you can then start to think about what are the things I'm really, really good at that other people can't match me at. And you lean into those things and hire people who can take the other stuff from you who are true experts in that field. But in the early days, unfortunately, you have to learn a lot of skills. And so what was the first role, the first person you hired into the business? I hired another generalist. Uh, So the first hire I made at Zero Gravity, and she's still working for Zero Gravity today, was someone called Rebecca, and she was graduate from Cambridge University. She did a degree in classics, but she was really interested in tech startups. And she was an all-rounder. She'd done marketing before, she'd done a little bit in products, but done a bit in operations. And in the early days, we worked very much as a duo executing across the entire business. So I think at the beginning, when you grow something, you almost want to find more people like you, the more people who can do a little bit of everything. They share your vision for the business, that buy into the same values that you buy into. But once you sort of get past you know, your first four or five people, that's when you want to start to specialize and you work. What are those really tricky challenges in my organization that you need a real expert to solve? So for instance, so when we made our forefire as a business, that was our chief technology officer. And that came from the idea that you know, I'd taken the sort of platform as far as I could take it as a non-specialist you know, in that field. And now we needed sort of the real the expertise and software engineering and growing a tech platform to take that forward but it took us around now two three years to get to that point you can go much further than you realize just by self-learning skills it's definitely difficult starting a business no bootstraps no without access to friends and family funding but it's by no means impossible if you're willing to really engage with some of the skills you need to get going and you mentioned funding there and part of your backstory is the funds that you have raised to get the business flying what was the first fundraise you did? And how did you go about getting to the market and saying, I want some of your money. This is what we're trying to do. Sure. So when I was growing up, I used to listen to all these Silicon Valley podcasts and kind of knew how tech startups worked. I knew they raised funding to be able to grow the business you know, before revenues you know, came in and that you'd have your know, seed round, series A round, series B rounds. There'd be the jargon that's all thrown around in the industry that doesn't really make any sense when you think about it, but it's the terms people use day to day. But when I started Zero Gravity and then moved down to London, I didn't really have any network in the tech startup space. I didn't have a group of investors I could go to to try and raise money for the business. So I had to get pretty creative. And the thing I really focused on in the early days was growing our brand awareness through both organic social media and then earned sort of traditional media. I was lucky that because of the really clear mission behind Zero Gravity and some of the really sort of emotionally resonant success stories that came out of the platform in the early days, our story got picked up by a lot of the traditional media outlets, the BBC News, the Times, the Telegraph. And from that, I started having investors come to me, the people who'd seen my business online, seen it profile and thought, wow, this is a really innovative idea and using technology to try and solve the social problem. I want to find out more about this. And then from that, I built my network from there. It was almost like a domino effect. If I look at our current list of shareholders, we've got around 30 shareholders in the business. 
all of them I can kind of trace back almost in a spider's web to you know, two or three people who got in touch in the early days. And that's the thing about networks. It's really difficult to start them and get them going. But once you build a big enough network, it almost becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's going to scale and become bigger and bigger and bigger just through the, the sheer scale of the people that you know. So there's that famous Arnold Palmer quote about golf, which is uh, the more I practice, the luckier I got. And the same, I think, is true for, for networks. So the bigger a network you start to build, the more you get lucky in terms of the right people just tend to you know, gravitate towards you. And that is, in many ways, how the shareholder register at, at zero gravity to where it is today. Yeah, I think the networking piece is, is often under promoted to people when they're starting out in their careers but of critical importance and as you said it can start turning itself after a while and people will make an effort to introduce you to others who can help and whether that's for fundraising or for sales or for building client bases networking can be so important but you started this without that network without the natural network that many people might have on their side when they start a business partly I guess because your background and partly because of your age, how natural or comfortable did you find it networking, reaching out to strangers and selling them a story? Yeah, I've always thought networking was a little bit of a dirty concept where I started. I'm from Yorkshire where everyone's very sort of direct and blunt and no one wants to be that person sort of in the pub telling everyone about their business. And I used to think networking was very American, a little bit, you know, dirty and fake. I was a little bit of a cynic about it, but I kind of realized that's just one form of networking. And that's your kind of conventional uh, you know, networking. And sometimes those events can be a little bit like that. But network doesn't have to be a dirty phrase. And unfortunately, that the nature of the, the modern world is it's a world dominated by networks, whether it's the social media platforms you use every day or the businesses you use, you know, Deliveroo and Uber, those businesses I mentioned to start, they're fundamentally networks that are underpinned by networks of uh, delivery drivers and taxis and customers. And if you're not someone who's proactive about building a network, it's very difficult to succeed in this modern world. So it required a bit of a mindset change from myself, but I just kind of got used to sort of getting out there, speaking to new people, sliding into people's LinkedIn DMs and doing things that I initially thought were unproductive. I used to think it was unproductive to take an hour away from developing a tech platform to go meet someone. But then I actually realized, especially if you're a young founder and you're inexperienced and you don't have direct access to things like investment and clients for your business, spending an hour building your network can often yield results that are far more than spending an hour researching online or with your head stuck in a coding problem because you tap into people who've got more resources than you and your youth in many ways is a competitive advantage when building a network because humans instinctively want to help younger people. Presumably must be some like evolutionary part of our psyche, which is we want to kind of rear the next generation to succeed. And you can really tap into that as a young person to get access to people who you would never think you'd be able to get access to. You know, why not DM that person? on LinkedIn, who's a famous entrepreneur, and tell them about your story, you know, tell them why you want a little bit of their time. And if you're a 21, 22-year-old, you've got a far higher chance of getting a response than if you were 50 or 60 years old. So you've really got to double down on that advantage whilst you've got it, because if you really get that lift-off point as a young person in terms of building a network, it's going to continue to grow and serve you for the rest of your life. I think that's so important. People are 
often surprised at how willing other people are to help, especially people who may be 15, 20, even 30 years into their career. And if you reach out and say, can I have a coffee? Can we have a conversation? Can you help me with some advice? Far more than you think it'll, they'll come back with a yes. And then your network's growing from there. So just going back to you starting up again, what did those first four or five months feel like? from a personal or even an emotional perspective rather than from a business perspective? It was a really big decision to launch a startup because I had no job offers at the end of university to go work in a law firm, go work in a hedge fund. And the quantums of money which were being offered by some of those firms were mind-blowing for someone like me from West Yorkshire. And I, I turned them all down and my friends and even my family thought I was completely crazy and for doing that. And there was you know, a, a huge degree of skepticism about what I was doing at the beginning, because I think in the UK, there is still a very underdeveloped culture around entrepreneurship. There may be in certain parts of London that's changed, but in most of the UK, if you start a business, until you get to the point where you kind of have the external trappings of success, you're going to face a lot of skepticism from people around you because I think people in the UK just aren't used to the concept of people starting something up for themselves. And there is not that culture around the acceptance of failure. And our entire education system teaches people to try and avoid failure and not embrace it. And I think that mentality also carries on, carries through into the business world as well. So there was a huge degree of skepticism about what I was doing. I'd moved back to West Yorkshire to my childhood bedroom to start the business whilst all my friends moved to their, their nice grad jobs in London and started sort of enjoying the high life of living in a really dynamic city. So it, personally, it was actually really difficult those first six months because I had no resources. I'd moved back home. I was dislocated from a lot of my friends at university. There was skepticism from my social circles about what I was doing or whether it was a good idea versus taking the more conventional route forward. And growing a business from the ground up, completely bootstrapped, is super, super tough because you can do things on a shoestring, but it takes far longer. And then when you've got to learn all of those skills you need to grow, now that takes time and energy. And, and constantly you're fighting the battle of not having resources, having to do things you know, on a shoestring, you know, cobbled together, not in the most perfect, beautiful way you'd want to do it. And what I kind of learned from that process about what it takes to succeed I think is three key things. I think one is about focus. I think every entrepreneur, especially first-time entrepreneurs, they have a big vision, a big idea. They want to bring that to reality and to take over the world. And that is a really good ambition to have. But you have to kind of tame that vision and instinct based on the amount of resources you've got and just focus really clearly on achieving a few set goals. It's better to 100% a couple of things rather than 15% everything. And one of the mistakes I see a lot of young founders make is they get carried away with just the scale of their vision and they spread themselves too thinly. So you've got to think really strategically, what are those first few things I'm going to focus on? I'm going to ignore everything else. I'm going to focus on a couple of key things. And then once I've achieved those things, I'm going to go to the next thing and next thing. So find those couple of things and almost build your kind of milestones, like your journey that you're going to go on. And for me, what that looked like is I built the brand initially. You know, I tried to get people interested in what I was doing. And then I built the tech platform. And then I tried to build 
media coverage of what I was doing, and then I tried to get investments. I kind of went on a stepping stone journey. I did do all those things at once. Over the course of six months, I went on the stepping stone journey in order to do those things. That was the first sort of big lesson that I learned. I think the second lesson about starting a business from the ground up is you've got to be audacious. Ultimately, like it's incredibly random starting a small business. Now, you can try loads of different things and things that you think are going to work don't end up working. I mean, you get little bits of luck that come out of nowhere, but you only get those little bits of luck from putting yourself out there. You might email you know, 100 journalists and 99 of them are interested in your business or giving you any coverage, but eventually you get that one person who resonates with your business. There's a particular angle they want to go down. And you get that one article and from all of the rest of your media coverage builds because everyone then starts to jump on the tray. Only way you can get into that that process is by being audacious and you know, refusing to give up. You've got to understand that as a small business, the odds are stacked against you. It's supposed to feel hard. So people watch these movies of these overnight successes like I've seen like the social network with you know jesse eisenberg playing mark zuckerberg and that kind of presents facebook as some kind of overnight success but even a great business like facebook it took months and months to go on off the ground that was originally built out of college dorm room and they jumped across different college campuses firing up students before it became a global platform so it's supposed to feel hard growing an early stage startup your success won't happen overnight and there's a huge degree of randomness and you've got to work that randomness to your favor by being really audacious about chasing down opportunities. And the final, final point I would make is that the root of raising investment for your startup doesn't have to be something which is off the table if you are someone from a normal background. It's much, much easier to start if you have that rich uncle who you can go to to get a £50,000 investment in your company. But if you're not someone from that background, and be proactive about building a network. Look at the grant funding that's available online nowadays for diverse founders. Really utilize your story about someone from an unconventional background to build interest in what you're doing. But you can turn what is classically a disadvantage into an advantage if you position it in the right way. And that's something that I did as well. So getting investment for your business doesn't have to be off the table if you're not from a rich background. I think the three points you've made there and the way you articulate them just sounds so familiar in a way to some of my own experiences, but just a few more years ago because you started so young. And the focus especially and being audacious, being brave, how much underneath the surface were you feeling confident the whole way through this? Or were there points at which you thought, this is going to fail or I'm a bit of an imposter in this world? I always sort of had the lingering doubt in the back of my mind, like you can call it imposter syndrome if you want to. You know, being a tech startup before, I had no credibility as a business founder. I was facing all that social skepticism. So I did have lingering doubts in the back of my head about, like, actually, is this ever going to work? And am I just wasting my time? I should I quit this right now and you know, go and take a conventional office job? So I had those lingering doubts. But I also had a kind of you might call it delusion or naive optimism, but I genuinely thought that my vision and the way I saw the world in the space, I was fundamentally correct. I thought if I just do this long enough and keep going and keep focused, eventually I'll have that breakthrough moment. And that did come for me eventually, but it took around six months to get there. 
And then that six months prior to it, there was many times I thought about quitting, to be completely honest. And and that's a natural psychological experience to go through as a founder. You're going to get caught up in moments of pure ex as you see your product come to life and also moments of just pure despair as things that you thought were going to work don't work and then you run into those surprises that you could never quite anticipate. And the question is, how do you get through that? I think there's only two things. Either you have to be a crazy, resilient person and sort of so passionate and almost deluded, naively optimistic in your vision that you can just get through any obstacle. And often that comes from backgrounds. And if you are somebody who is from a normal background or you have struggled with childhood trauma in whatever way it may be, a difficult family, difficult time at school, those experiences can actually power you forward in terms of creating inner drive. I think the second thing is that building a network of supporters around you. Now, building a network isn't just about getting access to hard resources like you know, money, connections, advice. It can be soft things as well, which is you know, when you've had a bad day, you've had a bad week, there's something you can turn to and have a conversation about that. And that's not just them advising you how you can get out of that problem. That's them just being there to listen to you especially if they're another founder, they can also reflect on their own experiences and let you know that you're not alone because founding a business can be a very lonely experience if you're a solo founder. Now, everything feels like it's on your shoulders and the entire time. So just having other people you can go and talk to about those things can also really make a difference as well. It's interesting listening to the way you describe it because it actually sort of triggers emotions in me that I remember from a time ago. My business almost went bust twice. I didn't have a partner at work. I was married, so I had a partner in my life, which was hugely important to me. But there was nobody I could really turn to when I was thinking we're going to have to close this down and get rid of people who I'd hired. So that is very familiar in the way you're describing it. And when you look back at those earlier years, are there pieces now that you think I would do that differently with the benefit of experience and hindsight? Yeah, everything looks scientific in retrospect. When you look back four years, you can kind of trace your journey through and the things that really make a difference and you thought, oh, maybe I should have done this earlier or that earlier. It's very easy to look at that in retrospect, very difficult to get it right at the time. I think the biggest mistakes I made were probably being often too slow and too timid about certain things. I think I should have moved down to London quicker to try and build a network to raise investment for what I was doing. I probably took you know, three months too long to do that. I think I also should have been more aggressive in our hiring plans as well, potentially. I was such a almost a control freak at the beginning about my business. I'd you know, grow it from the ground up and I felt a huge degree of nervousness about then you know, bes- bestowing that to other people to run various parts of it and that's the thing you need to mentally unblock as a founder you need to think so deeply about hiring recruitment and what sort of people do you want the daily of the culture and sort of values of your organization but you do need other people to be able to succeed and no business can grow as a one-man band i think i would have thought far earlier actually that how can i accelerate what i'm doing through other people rather than focusing so much on myself and what i could do personally to drive 
the business. And that is now part of my day-to-day job role. I'm constantly thinking about how can I facilitate other people, but it took me around three years to get to that point. And now that's something now in hindsight, I look back and, and thought, no, I should have tried to you know, build those skills earlier. But at the end of the day, I was also a 21, 22 year old at the time as well, who had absolutely no idea what he was doing. So even building those skills was something that just never occurred to me when I was that age. But if I could go back and speak to my younger self, that is probably what I'd tell him. Now, one key aspect, obviously, of what you do at Zero Gravity is is help people who don't necessarily come from the traditional backgrounds that went to the elite universities to actually get into those elite universities. And one of the questions I've been given by one of our listeners specifically for you is that you clearly believe going to university and academia is very important in helping you excel in your career. To what extent do you believe other routes are equally valid or that they are more relevant for some people than university? So where do your thoughts lie around going to university versus taking other routes? By no means fetishist about universities and ultimately zero gravity is about unlocking opportunity for people from low opportunity backgrounds by enabling them to reach their potential. I think for a big group of people, that means going to university. But I think for others, the university isn't necessarily the right choice. The way we look at things is we look at how does going to these elite institutions facilitate what you ultimately want to achieve. And one thing that a lot of people from low opportunity backgrounds care about is money. Because if you grow up in the background where money is incredibly scarce, they'll be able to get to a point where you can generate an income and feel a sense of you know, stability and security and then the ability to actually do things with money. That does really make a difference. It sounds quite crude, but then money is really important if you don't have it. And so the way I kind of look at things is that does going to you know, certain universities that increase your earning power your life and one of the things we know from the data is that they're going to a highly selective university it does dramatically change your outcomes in the job market if you get an offer from a russell group university versus a medium selective university in the uk it boosts your lifetime earnings by two hundred thousand pounds over your lifetime if you get an offer for study oxbridge versus russell group university that boosts it by additional £200,000. So we know from the data that you know, what university you go to can have a big impact on average on your lifetime earnings, which is why those really highly selective universities uh, can still be you no know, really good route for you to get better access to the job market and to really scarce the highly selective opportunities. But what we also know is there's lots of universities out there that are no longer doing a good job in terms of you know, giving access to the workplace and building those skills people need in their careers. So I encourage a lot of people to actually look at the data which is out there and a lot of the apprenticeships which are offered nowadays by a lot of companies also have really good uh, lifetime earning outcomes better than many universities. So we're not fetishists about universities, we're, we're fetishists about outcomes and, and ultimately you know, we want the members in our platform to choose what's right for them and the full knowledge of actually what going to those institutions gives them. And Oxford and Cambridge have an almost sort of mystique about them in this country, even from people who went to other universities. What was the experience at Oxford actually like? What is it like being a student studying at that historical university? The both institutions have a massive place in British culture and they're incredibly opaque, which has created this sort of you no know, magical notion around them. You still see all the sort of Harry Potter 
tools through the city as well, even now. I mean, the, the thing that makes those two universities stand out probably is the power of culture. One of the things I noticed going to Oxford is I turned up and on Freshers' Week, straight away, I was sort of told that by the tutors who were there, now you are the best of the best. And the people at this university have gone on to be you know, prime ministers, or leaders of countries, heads of businesses. And that is the expectation for everyone who's on this course. So you, you get told straight away that you're special and you have something about you. And then that sentiment is also reinforced by the new peer group that you make as well. who are all people who are you know, the high performers in their schools who also believe what they've been told about their own abilities. So that becomes self-reinforcing. And I do think that culture which university creates is very powerful because it builds people with a self-confidence in their own abilities and a huge degree of audacity as well. And the big issue those institutions have got is that historically, the people who frequented them have been people from a very affluent background, so private schools in the UK, and they haven't been truly representative of the country. I think the challenge for them is now how can they become more representative in the UK whilst retaining some of the positive things about the institutions which have made them so successful historically. But the power of culture is a massive aspect of it, which I don't think is spoken about. Everyone knows about the great research resources of the university or the financial resources, the great tutors, the lecturers, but people don't talk about the cultural element of them as well, which is probably the biggest part of their success. And you touched upon there a key aspect of what your business does in terms of tackling aspects of social mobility. And in this country, it's argued that perhaps where there were some efforts and successes being made to narrow the gaps between those who have and do not have at the start of their lives, COVID and some of the lockdowns and impact that's had on education as well has arguably increased those gaps again. What are you seeing that's working in tackling social mobility in the UK? And also, where is it failing? I think one big question people have, is poor social mobility unique to the UK? Or is this something which is a global phenomenon? And the truth of that is that every big developed economy has a social mobility problem, but to different extents. In the UK, roughly 45% of every pound that you earn from your lifetime can be predicted by how much your parents earn when you were growing up. That's almost the one in two pennies that you earn that can be attributed or predicted from your parents' earnings. And when you look at other countries around the globe, you see a similar picture, albeit the UK being much worse. And you look at comparable countries like Germany, it's more like you know, 30% of everything you earn. Australia, 25%. And then those Scandi countries, as per usual, are topping the leaderboards, where more like 15% of what you earn in those countries can be predicted your parents' earnings. So we do live in a society where what you go on to succeed is highly predictable from the backgrounds you're from. And when you look at other countries and you see that what is it about them that makes them more socially mobile compared to the UK, it tends to mainly come down to their education systems and the access to the workforce. And in the UK, we have an education system. We have these massive divides between educational have and the have-nots. And if you go to a a really good private school or a state school in a leafy area, your academic outcomes are far more likely to be positive than if you go to a underperforming state school in the UK in a low-income area. And we just almost accept that as the status quo in the UK. But when you look at other developed economies, that the gaps in their education system are far smaller uh, than ours. And if you go to somewhere like Denmark, for instance, and look at the attainment gap 
between you know, the rich and the poor. It's far, far smaller than in the UK. And that is something that we can change. That doesn't have to be inevitable. I think the second thing is access to the workplace. The UK has a very highly stratified system behind getting access to professional jobs. Often you need to have done work experience, which is very difficult to get unless you can get it through family connections. It's also highly based on your grades in school, what you got when you were a 16-year-old or an 18-year-old in the education system. It's highly based on what university you go to. And if you go to one of those top universities in the UK, that opens doors for you. Again, we take all of this as the status quo, but in many other countries, that link between your grades in school, what university you go to, and then what careers you can access is much weaker than in the UK. And if you look at a country like Germany, for instance, going to a top university there is far less important in terms of access to top employment opportunities than it is in the UK. And that is a decision we've made about how we want to structure our society. And that's something I think when you look at, do we want to live in a world where going to a bad school means you've got a far less likely to get good grades? And if you do get bad grades that kind of eliminates your chance of breaking into a top career. Now, do we want to live in a system which is constructed like that? Because that's the system we've currently got. So UK is, is far behind some of our comparators on social mobility. And what Zero Gravity is trying to do is level the playing field by accepting that the system is the way it is. And the way to beat the system in the short term is to get a big critical mass of talented people from low opportunity backgrounds into these institutions so once that they're there, they can change the culture and start to change the system from the inside. And obviously, some of the issues you've just mentioned are big macro issues. I mean, to change the education system in the country, which in my view, it needs changing. To change it, that requires government level intervention, obviously. And then there are businesses like yourself saying, actually, we're going to focus on a particular challenge that we believe we can do something with. This may be tricky. What about for the young people themselves, if you were speaking to a room full of people who don't have the advantages that others do, and we can say to them, this is what we want to do at a macro level, and this is what my business is doing, what can you do for yourself? What can they do for themselves to give them the best chance of stepping up and out of the situation that they've been brought up in? I mean, if you want to change the system, often the best way you can do that is by turning yourself into a success. And that can be a slightly dark thing to think about, right? That you have to almost acclimatize and socialize yourself into the system in order to take it down. But I think that is the way to make change. If you're a young person and you think the system's unfair, you can go onto the streets of a placard and try and make some noise. But by the time that the government has intervened and changed the system, it's going to be too late for you. It's probably going to be too late for the next generation as well. Government policy change takes a long time and is incredibly slow. The people have been talking about these issues in the UK for generations and yet nothing has changed. I'm not saying advocacy is not important, but the pace of change is slow. And what I think is a much quicker solution is to focus actually on how you beat the system and get to the top. And then once you're there, then think about how you can level the playing field for the next generation. And become that person who manages to become the first person in their area to get a job at an elite law firm. They progress through the firm, mentor people from similar backgrounds like yourself, and they get to a partnership position and then revolutionize the way that firm recruits people to make sure you're tapping into talent from all backgrounds. 
we have enough people doing that, the system starts to change organically. And I started to see that when I was at Oxford. And when I arrived in 2015, it was almost 50-50 state private school, massively representative of the country where 93% of people go to state schools. But by the time I graduated, and even looking at it nowadays, it's more like 70-30. And you can just tell that the culture of the university has started to change. And now there's far more applicants from people from normal backgrounds because they start to see the university as a place that you know, people like them are represented and they start to see it as a realistic option. And that happens just by thinking really creatively about how do we get more people into Oxbridge. And nowadays, the Zero Gravity platform is driving one in four of all the diverse students at Oxbridge into those universities. So we've sort of created quite a big change in a short period of time. And that's not just great for the people themselves, but that has changed the culture. So if you are someone from a, a low-income background or you live in that area of the country which isn't usually represented in these institutions, you almost have a duty to make yourself a success because your success is a beacon of hope for the next generation and in and of itself levels the playing field. I think what you said there about the culture at universities and within universities changing, what we see as well is the culture within businesses is changing and they are seeking now a diverse set of experience and skills. They're much more focused on the skills you bring rather than the subjects that you have studied. And this has moved way beyond what might have been diversity tick boxing five, 10 years ago when something says, actually, we're going to be a better business for this as well. So is that something you're seeing as well? And if so, is it moving fast enough? Is it moving in the right direction? I see a massive change in the landscape over the past five years. I think five years ago, the social mobility was often a tokenistic tick box issue. Now, everyone cares about social mobility because it's about you know, social justice, empowering talented people. But I don't think anyone really had an impetus to do anything about it. But then loads of evidence started coming out about that link between you know, social mobility, diversity, and performance, and, and not just research at the macro level as well. There's always been studies showing the link between social mobility and economic growth. If we could just get social mobility in the UK to the same level as Western Europe, we'd add £39 billion to GDP. That's a £1,000 in the pocket of every household every year if you can get social mobility to the same level as Western Europe. That's at the macro level. At the micro level, a lot of businesses now have done the research and they found that actually some of their most productive, high-performance people are the people from social mobile backgrounds, so the people who weren't given opportunity on a plate and had to fight to defy the odds. But once they did get into these firms, they had all of the raw talent, the resilience, the grit, and determination to succeed. One of the first companies that their gravity worked with were KPMG, one of our first clients, and they were the first business in the UK to put an explicit target on the number of people from working class backgrounds they wanted in their workforce. And the reason they did that wasn't just because it was the right thing to do, but because they'd done a massive internal data analysis where they found that even though people from social mobile backgrounds progress slower within their company, the ones that do reach the very top were some of their most high-earning, productive partners. So it almost became a commercial imperative for them. We want to drive social mobility in our company because it's not just the right thing to do, but these people, and they go on to become the big high earners in our company. And once the economic incentives are there, 
the things can start to change quite dramatically. You know, you've seen it in the environmental sector as well. Tokenistic issue 20 years ago, massive growth driver. Now, I mean, the same is starting to happen for social mobility. So we're starting to work with a lot of these companies who now really want to drive more people from normal backgrounds into their workforces because it's good for their bottom line. It's not just good for their social impact. And I don't see that cynically. I see that as a positive thing because it actually creates an impetus for change. We've obviously, in this conversation, unwrapped a lot of your career to date. It's still a very fresh, new and young career. What's happening next year? What are the plans and what are your own personal goals coming up? So to date, Zero Gravity supported over 8,000 students from low opportunity backgrounds and top universities. This year, we've got a new cohort of 10,000 students on our platform applying to university. So hopefully I can report back to you in a year's time that we've supported around 18,000 students into top universities. And that's just a real big scale up on our platform. And it kind of justifies the decision I made early doors to focus on building technology and a great product because to be able to go from supporting hundreds of people to now tens of thousands has only been made possible by having a tech platform that can really scale. So we're going to continue to scale the work we've done to get students into university. They were working with more employers to you know, change the way their recruitment system works and level the playing field. We've worked with companies like Morgan Stanley and the KPMG, HSBC, and we're really starting to change now the success rates for people from low-income backgrounds applying for roles in those companies. With HSBC, we managed to double the rates of people from low-income backgrounds accessing their internships and I will start replicating those kind of figures in all the companies we work with because they are just data points and if we can do that in all the big employers we fundamentally change the game and get a different type of person working at these companies and just the ripple effect that we'll have over time in terms of reshaping the culture of some of these institutions and the landscape in the UK I think will be quite dramatic so we are a very kind of data focused company but the end result of that I do think is big culture system change and that's what we're trying to make possible. And what about beyond the success of both the business and the impact you're having? What about for you personally? You know, it's been obviously hard work. It's one thing that is often missed out in these stories that you don't get this success without sheer hard graft. Is there anything personally you want to do less of, more of, better at yourself over the next year? Yeah, it's been a whirlwind of a journey over the past four years, you know, starting a business in the bedroom and then scaling it to you know, 25 people, you know, working full-time in the office. I have to sort of pinch myself, walking in some days, it was just you know, bubbles of activity around me. And I'm no longer in amidst everything and there's people out there and executing your vision. That one seemed completely unfathomable only four years ago. I think personally, I'm really passionate about solving this issue. I don't want to tread water. I want to build the kind of industry-defining company in this sector that turns social mobility into a commercial imperative for every organization and actually solves it with technology. In the same way that those businesses I referenced at the beginning, you know, Deliveroo and Uber have become kind of synonymous with their sector. You know, people will talk about you know, getting an Uber when they say, I want to get a taxi, or they'll say, I want to get a delivery when they're talking about getting takeaway food. I want zero gravity to almost become the metaphor for you know, unlocking opportunity if you're someone from a low-income background. And that does require a huge degree of personal sacrifice. It's really difficult 
being a solo founder, it's stressful where you, you constantly don't have enough hours in the day. But this is something that I genuinely believe in and I'm passionate about because it's a journey that I've lived myself and I'm solving a problem for future people like me. So I just want to keep going and growing this and turn it into that industry defining business. The only thing I want to make sure I've still got time for is to see my football team, Old City, play at the weekend. That is the one non-negotiable in my life. But other than that, it's all about zero gravity. Well, look, Joe, thank you so much. One of the things we want to do on Careers Unwrapped is we want to keep passing this baton of careers experience along. And so I'm wondering if you could perhaps name for us one person who you think should come on this show, whose experience would be valuable for all of us to hear about from the perspective of their career journey. Sure. I think somebody who would be like really interesting to talk to because he's also got a really unconventional journey is actually one of the people who first helped me when I first started Zero Gravity. He's a founder of a business called Bean, which is a homelessness a startup which uses crowdfunding and technology to break people out of homelessness. And then Alex Stephanie, the founder, was one of the first people I turned to when I was starting my business, Zero Gravity, because he was pioneering a tech startup approach in a space which had conventionally been dominated by charities and making a real impact. Um, so I think he'd be a really good person to talk to about the employing unconventional techniques in different sectors. And also he's got a great story as someone who was originally a lawyer I really struggled in that career sector and then dropped out. I thought he was never going to be able to work in a conventional career again and then found himself pulled into this crazy world of tech startups. So I think he'd be a really interesting person to talk to, present a different perspective on getting into the startup industry. Great. Thank you. We'll see if we can get him in. So much to take away from that altogether, Joe. I think that the three points you made about having focus, being audacious, and knowing about the routes to investment are a tick list that any startup founder could do well to bear in mind, underpinned by the networking and people aspect that you've brought out several times during this. It's been fantastic to hear your story, but also strange to think that it's only four or five years old as a story. And so there's going to be a lot more to come. It's been great. Joe, thank you. Cheers. Thanks for having me on, Mark. This podcast is sponsored by We Are Futures. To find out more about We Are Futures and how we can introduce your brand, business or organisation to the mass markets of tomorrow, visit www.wearefutures.com. Make sure to search for Careers Unwrapped in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts or anywhere else podcasts are found. Remember to click subscribe so you don't miss out on any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at We Are Futures, thanks for listening.